So one of the main words that comes to mind with Christmas, even as we're singing and praying this morning, is hope. One of the key words. But I think it's also one of the most misleading words that we use, hope. That's because when we use the word hope, we often mean something that's uncertain, that we're not sure about. We're talking about something that we wish would happen. So this could be like, I, I hope I win the, ho- the lottery, right? Or I hope I do well in my finals. Amen? We hear that? Or I, I hope that my health gets better. These are things that are uncertain. We don't control. We don't know for sure. So we use the word hope. We, we hope this will happen. But scripture uses the word differently. Rather than being something that's uncertain, that we're not sure about, Scripture uses hope as something that's a guarantee that we're waiting for. It's beautiful. It uses hope for a promise that we've been given that we're eagerly and expectantly waiting for. So hope is this confident expectation of what we know will be ours. That's hope according to Scripture. This is why for prophets for ages and generations, they were giving this word that one day there will come a Messiah. One day God will come and set all things straight. One day God will come and heal our wounds. One day God will come and restore our relationship with him. And the people were full of hope, waiting for his coming. And Christ did come. There was a baby that was born. The Messiah did arrive. God kept his word. He was faithful to his promise. Their hope was not disappointed. And this is why we love Christmas. It's it's a moment where we're looking back on the hope of former generations, and they're looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and we can share in that same excitement and eagerness that Christ came. God was faithful to his promises. But this morning... I also really want to look that we have our own current and present hope right now. Not just one that we're right to look back on of what has already been fulfilled, but one that we're supposed to be eagerly and expectantly and confidently waiting for. We have our own hope right now. Who doesn't need hope in this room? Uh, Who has everything exactly as they desire it in this room right now? Who doesn't have some burden, a relationship that's broken, a body that's suffering, a moment of a crisis in their life that we are craving hope? So God is right in his word to speak promises to us about Jesus, the fullness we will have in him, that often scripture wraps this up in saying a promise of heaven, a promise of heaven, our hope of what we will one day have. So for the next several weeks of Advent building up to Christmas, yes, we want to look at Jesus and his coming, but also our current and present hope of his promise of heaven. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're going to read several verses there, and then we're also going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 very briefly. Let me read these passages for us. Again, that's the Gospel of John pretty far through your Bible if you're new to that. More than okay, jump into the table of contents if you need to find these books. John chapter 14. I'm going to read for us the first six verses. 
says this, John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hear this from 1 Peter, again, chapter 1. It's going to be verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter, have this on screens for you as well. 3 through 5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We say here at King's Cross, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some passages full of hope, no? Left with a lot of questions about heaven. When will that be? What will that be like? Who will be there? What is this existence in heaven? What is this place? What happens to earth? All of these questions just looking to address here in the next several weeks. But this morning, I want to look at five misconceptions that we have about heaven that I think Jesus and Peter are looking to correct. So five misconceptions that we have about heaven that I want to walk through here this morning. So our first misconception about heaven here is heaven is a faraway place we will stay in forever when we die. Our first misconception. Heaven is a faraway place. We will stay in forever when we die. Now, when you hear this, you might be like, well, that sounds kind of true to me. Are you saying that's wrong? Uh, there is much that is true about this statement, but it's also hiding some critical truths that we need to understand a little bit more. So first of all, let me be very clear. Just a little definition of heaven, if you will. This comes from Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology. He says, Heaven is the place where God most fully, most fully expresses his presence to bless. Again, heaven is the place, the place where God most fully, he's expressing his presence in order to bless. Now notice that in saying this heaven is not just where God is, is, or God resides, or God is present, because we know and confess as Christians that God is, is present in all places. It says beautifully in Psalm 139, it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. That's a good promise. I can't go anywhere, and you're not also very present with me. God is everywhere. But we're right to confess that in heaven, this is where God dwells 
and to most fully, completely express his presence to us for our blessing. We also say this heaven is a place where Jesus currently resides in his resurrected body. That Jesus has been raised from the dead in a new resurrected body, and he didn't shed that. Amazingly, if you have not thought of this, Jesus still resides in a flesh-resurrected, glorious body in heaven. That's what we say. We're also right to confess that this is where those who trust in Jesus go when they die. It says in the Gospels when Jesus is on the cross and there's a criminal being crucified next to him, Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise, giving this man hope. Or again, when Paul is writing the book of Philippians, he's talking about his own possible death, and he says, I'm not afraid of dying. Actually, if I die, that's going to be gain for me, because you know what that means, Philippians? That means I will be present with the Lord. So we know to die is to be with him. We say this is heaven. This is the language that we use. So if these things are true, what in the world am I talking about is untrue in this? Some assumptions that are hidden here that I just want to clarify for us. First of all, that it's a far away place, rather than heaven also not being right here and right now among us. What do I mean? A writer named Sky Jathani really helpfully points out that, again, in centuries past, the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, looked forward to a day when heaven and earth would be reunited. They were longing and writing about a moment when, so good, God's glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. We're talking about a time when God himself will be with us and he will set all things straight. This is where they set so much of their hope. So Jews in the first century, when they were talking about the fulfillment of these massive promises, full of hope of God coming among us, setting all things right. They talked about it as the kingdom of heaven. This is when the kingdom of God will be among us. So get the shock then when Jesus comes and starts preaching around to these Jewish villages and he says to them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we take this, and I've often thought this in my own mind, at hand means like right around the corner. Or at hand is almost here. It's close. But what Jesus means, scholars draw out, by at hand is it's, it's right here. The kingdom of heaven is right now among you. What Jesus means is that all of these Hebrew prophets and the fulfillment they were longing for is right now being initiated. The time of fulfillment is occurring right before your eyes. Because the king of heaven is walking among you, is what Jesus means. This longing for God to come and set all things right, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is among you. This is the stunning nature of Jesus in all of his miracles. It's not that Jesus is doing things against nature, but beautifully what's happening in the Gospels is that Jesus is showing God's incoming restoration of all things. He's setting all things right as has been promised. And this work continues today. So yes, we are very right to look forward to a one-day fullness in the presence of God. We are right to look forward to heaven but mysteriously, what the Gospels are trying to show us is that also, right now, 
God is inbreaking with his work and his presence into our broken world. We're not just waiting for the one day, but God's already expressing his rule and his presence and his joy. I got one mic down. You guys still okay? He's, he's right now expressing his joy, his presence, his reign in our world. So yes, it's one day. It's not yet here. But at the same time, it is already among us. Does this make sense? There's a tension that we're meant to live in. I am so full of hope for fully being in your presence, Jesus. But I would be a fool to not realize that you are already breathing your life your power, your kingdom into my heart and into my county and into our church right now. Do you see this? So don't just think heaven's far away because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is working. Secondly here, it's a little confusing when we think that heaven is where we will always be when we die. I'm not going to get deep into this. I'm actually going to address this more next week. But what scripture clearly points out is that God is ultimately going to make all things new. It says he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And the two will be coming together in this beautiful marriage, if you will. That God will bring his presence fully here. So when we're talking about heaven, we're not talking about a faraway place we're going to stay in forever. The best way to think is right now, where you are, this world made new. This earth here, restored, is your ultimate destination and home if you are in Jesus. So yes, we have this intermediate place of being with Jesus in heaven, but actually the fullness of heaven is, will be a new earth that he's bringing us to. I have a lot of questions about that. That will be next week. We're going to dive into that hope more. That's our first misconception. Secondly, we have a misconception that heaven is boring. <laughs> heaven is boring. You can say it. I know you guys might have been thinking. Check out this cartoon. It's by Larson. I think it really captures this. A guy who's on a cloud, and he says, I wish I would have brought a magazine, right? <laughs> like, you're just up there. Maybe you got a harp. Maybe you're watching things going on, but you are incredibly bored sitting on a cloud. Love, honestly, this uh, Lloyd, jo Lord George, he was a prime minister in England in the early 1900s. He said this, he, uh, honestly here, he says, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape, right? <laughs> and it's true, there are images of heaven being in God's presence and revelation where people are praising God and sometimes people extrapolate from that that that's all we will ever ever do in heaven it's just one long church service forever and ever now hear me I'm a pastor clearly I love getting to gather with you all but an idea of perpetual services does not excite my heart <laughs> I, I, th I think we're made for more than this right What's helpful is also this is not scripture's testimony about what the fullest picture of his presence and glory and the new redeemed life will be. It's not what it says. This is our cultural assumption and our cultural imagination of what heaven will be. That people are singing song after song after song or strumming on a harp on a cloud and they think they are going to be so, so bored being up in heaven. So we don't want to think about it. We don't give our hearts and our imagination to consider the glory that we might 
be brought into. It's interesting, a writer named J.C. Ryle, a preacher, he, he said, you should think about heaven as if you were about to immigrate to a foreign country like New Zealand. If you knew you were about to move in a couple weeks to a completely different country like Australia or New Zealand, wouldn't you do everything you could to learn about that new country? You'd want to know their climate. You want to know their culture. What kind of homes do they have? What are the cities? What's the government? What are the people, the customs? You would do everything you could to learn about your future home because that's where you're going to be. It says in the same way, you should get your heart to consider deeply where you will be spending eternity. You are right to wonder and to consider, and Scripture is looking to stir up our affections for this. Hear what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Similarly, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. We're new in him. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Above all, Paul means that we should set our minds on Jesus, the one we've been raised with. But I think he's also calling us to consider what will one day be ours and our inheritance in heaven, as is written in 1 Peter. So just briefly, what, is, what does this mean? Okay, set my mind on things above what will one day be mine in this inheritance. What is heaven even going to be like? I think one good hint for us is to consider God's original design, how he made mankind and put us in a garden. And we see in the very beginning of Scripture, because this is what God's going to restore. So when we look at Adam and Eve, they're given good, life-giving labor in a garden. They're eating food. There's exploration. There's purpose. There's rich, meaningful relationships and enjoyment of God and who he is. There's a deep connection with the creation God has given. So as God is bringing us back to a new heavens and a new earth, he's looking to restore what was lost and more. I believe scripture is telling us, yes, you'll be eating food. You'll be in the midst of exploration. There'll be meaningful work to do. There will be overwhelming delight in the presence of God. There'll be restoration and reunion and relationships. This, we believe, is the promise of what God is giving us. So heaven will be far from boring. Thirdly here, another misconception hearing this lot of modern thought is that heaven is just make-believe. That heaven is just wishful thinking. <laughs> Clearly, according to our modern culture, they say people are afraid of death, and so because they're afraid of death, they've made a happy Disneyland in the sky that we all go to when we die. This is the assumption of our culture. So it's more of like a make-believe children's game than something that's true and meaningful and real. And to be honest, I think many people in the church, they feel this subtle accusation. So that there's a bit of embarrassment today in talking about heaven or that you believe in heaven. It's like saying you believe in a fictional place like Atlantis. People would look at you and say, really? You believe that a heaven exists? So we feel some embarrassment from this. I want you to see how different Jesus is. Jesus is not at all ashamed about this hope or drawing his disciples to set their minds there saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's a place that we are called to be with him. 
He's stirring up our desires for this. And Jesus is not saying this is just some consolation prize or a foreign add-on to this life. Jesus is meaning, again, that there's a restoration of what God has originally made. It's not a foreign add-on consolation prize. This is a deep bringing back what has been lost. So according to the biblical vision, we were originally made to be in rich relationship with one another, and especially with God. And that has been lost by our humanity's sins, so that brokenness has gotten woven into every part of us and every part of creation. But beautifully, God does not abandon his work. God is not turning back on what he has made. He instead says, I will make this all new. I will restore what you have broken. So it's not a foreign add-on. It's right that we should see we are longing for something because it's been lost. We're right to want this. It's not wishful thinking because God's bringing a restoration. It makes sense of our desires that we are longing for something that we do not currently have because Scripture's telling us you have lost it and it will be restored. This is why we hunger for relationships that we've lost. This is why we long for deeper community with one another. This is why we're so eager to have bodies that fully function and work. We are right to desire these things because we subtly, whether we confess it or not, know it has been lost. So Jesus is giving us a promise of restoration for us to fully have this again. Love C.S. Lewis says this so well in talking about these desires. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So what we see in Christians confessing is that no, heaven is not wishful thinking. It's not a make-believe game. Rather, what we are saying is that heaven is the rational outflow of being made for something more. And our hearts knowing that even if we're afraid of it with our minds. To be honest, our modern world and its assumptions about this can be very difficult to throw off. They're like an enchantment that have fallen over our minds. Again, I love C.S. Lewis. He draws this out so well in his Chronicles of Narnia in his book, The Silver Chair. And in that book, he talks about how these two children, Eustace and Jill, they're they're captured in this underground kingdom along with their guide named Puddleglum. It's like one of the best characters, a grumpy, skeptical Puddleglum. And they're captured in this underground kingdom by this enchantress, this evil witch, who calls herself the queen of the underworld. All underground, she owns it all, she says. And she puts them under a spell to convince them that all of their memories of Narnia, all of their memory of the land above the ground, is all make-believe. It's all something they've brought up in their imagination. All of their memories are just a children's game of make-believe. 
And the children, they, they still feel that it's real, and so they try to tell her about it. They say, there's this sun in the sky. And the enchantress, she says, what is this sun like? And they're like, well, it's kind of like a, a really big lamp that's up in the sky. And the witch, she says, well, see what you've done. You've just taken something from my underworld, and you've made it a bigger and better version. You're just making up things. It's just a children's game that you're playing. So they think of something more, and they say, well, there's also Aslan, this massive lion who's the king of all of Narnia in the world. And again, she says, who is this Aslan? What is he like? And they try to struggle to find a description. They land on, he's like a really, really big cat. She says, there you've done it again. You've taken something from my underworld, and you've just made a bigger and better crazy version of it in your imagination that you say is in this above-ground Narnia. Now, this queen the underworld knows very well that Narnia exists. <laughs> she knows very well that there's an Aslan and a son, but she is trying to deceive the children into thinking that whatever they cannot sense with their eyes and their hands and whatever they cannot feel, she says, is just imagination. Whatever you cannot perceive with your senses is made up. And the children begin to waver. They begin to think, yeah, there, there is no Narnia. There is no grass or sky or stars. There is no Aslan. Everything is just this underworld. But thankfully, Puddleglum, the skeptic, speaks up. And he says, well, suppose you're right. Suppose we are just making all of this up. The grass, the sky, the sun, Aslan, this whole above ground world. Suppose we are making all of it up. Isn't it strange that our made up world is more important then this world you say is real. It says, our make-believe world licks your world hollow. As Puddleglum says this, he breaks the enchantress, the evil witch's curse on the underworld. She's revealed to be this deceptive serpent. She's slayed by the rightful king of Narnia, and all of this underworld is set free. Suddenly, all the light from above in Narnia comes into this underworld and the people are set free. There's this crazy parade of joy. It's such a beautiful moment. But what's C.S. Lewis's point in all of this? He's incredibly trying to tell us that we should be wary of falling under the spell of our modern naturalistic world that tells us whatever you cannot perceive with your senses is make-believe. Whatever you cannot see and touch and here, if it's not available to your physical senses, it's not real. You must be wary of falling under the spell that Jesus and his promises that he has given us that are so much more important can't be relied upon. Exposing this, that we are right to set our hope on this. It is not wishful thinking. It's actually the deep joy that we're made for. Number four, another misconception here for us is that heaven makes us ineffective in this life. Heaven makes us ineffective in this life. You might have heard this quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. He said, those who are most heavenly minded <laughs> are of the least earthly good. Heard that before? A lot of common assumptions here that we shouldn't think about heaven, long for heaven, hope for it, talk about it, because it's going to make you more ineffective here. I actually think this is somewhat of a fair point because there is a tendency, to be honest, within evangelical Christianity today in America to withdraw from the world around us. 
to actually no longer engage people with the gospel, with the love of Christ, and instead to come back into the safety of our own world and to harbor down there. I think this is a wrong mindset. What we see instead in Scripture is that Jesus is giving his disciples this promise of heaven, a place where they will be with him, because he wants them to engage this world more fully. He wants them to feel, be filled with hope so they're not caught up in the snares of this life, but instead have their longing, their affection set on another world. You see this. Jesus realizes that the more you long for this other home, the less you'll be ensnared by the jealousies, passions, and mindset of this life. Love this cutting quote from John Piper. He says, I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. I think that's true, that the danger is not that we focus too much on heaven. The danger for us as Christians is that we have the same heart and the same mind as this world that we get caught up in the same kind of ambitions, the same kind of loves, the same kind of mindset as the world around us so we are not different, so that we do not love it freely because we're too caught up in making the most of the here and now rather than letting our heart and our life be set on above. Again, one more C.S. Lewis quote. He's too good in this. He says this. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. <laughs> so I hope for us as a church, as we have our affection stirred up for Jesus and our ultimate home to be with him forever, it leads us to be more fruitful here in Rice County. Have a deeper love for our neighbor because we're detached from these short-lived, not satisfying affections that we get caught up in. So don't be afraid of longing for heaven. Lastly, quickly here, our fifth misconception is that heaven, heaven here is full of mansions under construction. <laughs> heaven is full of mansions under construction. This comes here from John 14 that we read, that Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. My Father's house, there are many rooms. It's a long story of translation here, but just to shortly say, some Bible translation have taken this word rooms, and they've named it mansions, mansions, so that people perhaps think that heaven is just this one massive, nice suburb full of mansions that we're all going to get our own one, right? So people's minds go. Even worse, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, they think that all of these mansions are currently being built, as if Jesus is overseeing a celestial construction company and he's just trying to keep pace with everything, right? So he's just been building, building, building. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We don't say this, but sometimes in our minds, this is what we think. This is, doesn't quite fit what Jesus is saying. First of all here, he says, in my father's house. The, the word here clearly means dwelling places or rooms. And Jesus is using a metaphor here, not to say we're going to be staying in one massive lodge altogether, but what he means is that 
everyone will have access in being with God. There will be room for all of us, ample room for you to be with God. We will not be crowded out of his presence and out of his joy. You will be with him. So don't be afraid of being on the edges or being lost or not seen. We will all be with him is what Jesus' point is here. Secondly, though, what does Jesus mean by I'm going to prepare a place for you? Did he need to go to heaven to do work? Clearly, scholars draw out here in John, what is meant is that Jesus is saying, my going is through the cross and through the resurrection. The way I am making is through my death. That's how you are brought back into relationship with the Father. The way we enter into God's presence, the way we have this hope of heaven is not a construction company in the sky. It's Jesus and his death on a cross for us. It's by his resurrection. That's how a way is made. This is why Thomas said, we don't know this way. And he says, I, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the one who's doing all this preparation by giving my very self for you. So this hope is now available to me, to you, to every person in this room. Not by the kind of good life we have lived, but by looking at Jesus and what he has done to make this hope living and real for us. We have a living hope here through Jesus. It's not built on my shoulders. It's not built on your shoulders. It's not built on my life. It's not built on your life. It is built on Jesus Christ, and it's not going anywhere. So be filled with hope this morning of what will be yours, full of confidence and eager expectation because you've been given a promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and we will be with him forevermore. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to take communion here as well before we worship.